Hello and welcome to Sharp China. I am not Andrew Sharp. Uh, Andrew Sharp has brought a new being into the world. He is uh, t- changing diapers or doing something of that sort. I am Ben Thompson, and uh, I am excited to be here to talk to you, Bill. Bill, it's been a long time since we podcasted together. Yes, it has, Ben. It's great to see you, and congratulations, Andrew. We'll have you back soon. But Ben, it's great yes. to see you from Taiwan. Yeah, well, I, I, I left a special treat for Andrew. Uh, we had this this uh, f- the France and China sort of uh, meeting, uh, and then the resulting sort of brouhaha. It's sort of a fertile ground for jokes that I feel Andrew would be well-suited for. But because you guys did not record last week, there is an absolute sort of explosion of news, some of which is relevant to me, both in terms of Taiwan and also tech, uh, some of the AI stuff. So I figured we we will have more than enough to keep our plates full. Yeah, looking forward to it. Actually, this is we have an apologies to the listeners. We have not recorded for two weeks because I was on spring break the week before with my kids looking at colleges. So uh, it's been a, almost a three week hiatus. Good to be back and uh, really looking forward to uh, having some uh, having a nice conversation with Ben, who's always got uh, some great ideas. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll a little see intimidating. About that. Ben, ben is yeah. the OG, so it's a little intimidating. It's good to be here. No, it's funny because uh, you know you were a frequent guest on Stratechery. Now we have the Stratechery Plus uh, Cynicism Partnership. It's actually kind of weird to how how would I have you back on? So now this actually works out. We can do it in reverse. It's good. I'm excited to be here. We can argue about Substack at the end if you want, <laughs> but. For now, uh, (laughs) let's start with CNN. Uh, Taiwan President Tsai Ing-wen delivered a dire warning that democracy is under threat as she met with U.S. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy on Wednesday in California. This was actually not not this Wednesday. It was uh, last week. Last week. A highly anticipated event that marked a show of democratic solidarity in defiance of threats from China. Uh, There's some good U.S. media sort of spin on that one. Uh, Tsai gathered with McCarthy and a bipartisan group of U.S. lawmakers at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library in California's Simi Valley. The landmark meeting is the second time Tsai has met with an American lawmaker of that rank in the space of a year, following a visit from then-House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to Taiwan in August. Tsai is also the first president of Taiwan to meet with the U.S. House Speaker on American soil. The meeting prompted an angry statement from Beijing with the spokesperson for China's foreign ministry saying that, quote, China firmly opposes and strongly condemns it. Um, There were obviously other things that then went down, including uh, some sort of the, the military exercises, some threats to board ships, all of which I do want to get to in a moment. But let's start with the sort of U.S. perspective, given this happened on U.S. soil, um, which I think in and of itself is sort of a meaningful difference in this meeting compared to other yes. ones. Um, well, so the backdrop is that Taiwan was on her way to visit um, two, two of the, I think, 13 remaining uh, countries that recognize Taiwan and, and, and these two are Latin America. And so when she does these trips, uh, t- traditionally, the Taiwan president will transit through the U.S. Um, and this is actually her seventh transit since she's become president. And so um, usually she'll come, she'll have some meetings. She won't meet with, the, with uh, serving U.S. officials, uh, try and keep it low key. China gets upset. Uh, sort of move along, sort of everyone sort of plays by certain rules, and then she goes back to Taiwan and it sort of kind of dissipates. Um, This case, though, was uh, unique uh, because, as you said, she met with the House Speaker McCarthy. Uh, What's interesting is originally that um, McCarthy had said when he was, soon after he was elected uh, Speaker, he said, well, he would go to Taiwan um, just like Nancy Pelosi did. And that was... 
there was a lot of concerns that that would cause a pretty significant reaction from the PRC. And so there was clearly some behind the scenes kind of negotiating between the between Taiwan and the U.S. And, and McCarthy's office, as well as I think between the U.S. and the PRC to somehow make this meeting still happen, but happen in a way that was potentially less um, uh, incendiary from the PRC perspective. And so even the original sort of leaks that came out that actually the visit was going to be here in the U.S. with McCarthy, as opposed to him going to Taiwan, um, President Tsai was also, she was going to, she was going to give a speech at the Reagan Library. Um, And then I think because of various pressure that was put on from the PRC side, either it's unclear whether it was put on Taiwan or the U.S. or both, the speech basically went away, and her her events, her, her activities here were were, were quite private. Um, and so, and it also happened at a time when you had the former president of Taiwan, Ma Ying-jeou, was visiting China as part of this broader outreach from the PRC side to sort of talk to the opposition party, the KMT, and sort of give up different scenario of what could happen if the Taiwanese have the right attitude towards reunif- quote unquote reunification right. with China. We will get, we'll, we'll get to Ma Zhou in the, in the Guomingdang in a little okay. bit. Okay. But, but what I was going to say is, and so, and then you had the European, you had Macron and you had the um, von der Leyen visiting China. And so, so there was a very, I think, restrained response from the PRC until those three people had left the country. And then you ended up with uh, a set of military exercises over three days that were not as, uh, Sort of kinetic in the, as as they were last August, they didn't fire missiles in you know into the e, Japan's easy or sort of off of Taiwan, but they did do a bunch of things that were new that sort of demonstrated some capabilities and some tactics around encircling Taiwan and potentially being able to attack it from the east. They put their new aircraft carrier, the Shandong, on the eastern side of Taiwan and flew flew jets from that towards Taiwan, and so it was a pretty meaningful exercise by the PLA, and it was a pretty. Um, a pretty significant demonstration of, I think, sort of how they would handle um, a real crisis. Yeah, I think that your point, though, is a super good one, which is, look, once McCarthy said he was going to come, from a U.S. perspective, basically a meeting had to happen. Yes. You're not going to have a situation where in the face of Chinese, China getting upset, you're going to not have the meeting. Yes. But to your point, it's actually if you back up and look at it from a 10,000 sort of foot level – this was, in some respects, a concession where, you know, it is interesting, this whole this whole bit about Taiwanese presidents visiting, quote unquote, visiting the U.S., um, to, you know, to your point, it's always sort of the transit things right. has always been an explosive one. I mean, even uh, you remember, go back to the 90s when uh, Lee Nong-Hwa wanted to like visit his, said he wanted to visit his classmates and go to Columbia. Like that was a that was a a very sort of explosive sort of uh, event as well. And. I don't know if it's good news or bad news that on one hand, uh, it's great that everyone, despite all the rhetoric, this actually signified a bit of a retreat in some respects by everyone. On the other hand, there is sort of a normalization of uh, of of new behavior that is that was not the case before. I mean, where are you at? Was this all at all big picture good news or or bad news or, or sort of TBD? Um, I think that it was positive in the sense that it, um, it I think, diffused what could have been a, a potentially significant sort of intensification of the ongoing um, 
kind of, I mean, some people don't like to call it a crisis, but other people will say this is the, the latest Taiwan crisis. It really started with Pelosi's visit last August. You know, the one you referred to when Li Donghui came to the U.S., spoke to his alma mater, um, that Taiwan crisis lasted for about eight months. And so um, these and things- what's your mind marked to the sort of beginning and end of that? I mean, I, I, was, I think most people recall, you know, the missiles going over, over Taiwan, which, uh, by the way, happened last year as well. Uh, you know, U.S. eyeing a, a, a aircraft carrier down the strait. <laughs> um, like, but what 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 was the eight month sort of boundaries there? So the boundaries were, um, I think it really was started by Li Donghui coming to the U.S. and he was like the Chinese side was told he wouldn't do certain things, and then he did. Um, he wouldn't get a visa, and then he got a visa, and that started it. Um, and that was in, and I'm like, I'm looking up the dates here. That was in uh, the summer of 1995. Um, and then we then, in response, sort of put a bunch of ships around sort of the Taiwan Straits. Um, and then, then it was the, um, Taiwan election in 96. And so, and I think the Chinese made a mistake because they thought that they could basically up sort of upgrade or, or sort of intensify threats. And that would have a influence on the election in the way they wanted it to go. And it didn't. It, it, went, it went the opposite direction. Right. And, and so that goes to where we are because the next election from Taiwan is next, I think, next January. And yep. so I think also one of the reasons why this reaction from the PRC was relative, and I don't want to say relative, it was, it was relatively restrained sort of an, an was, I think. Right. That's what I mean about this, this sort of shift in the baseline, right? Yeah. Like it, it was, it was quite dramatic compared yes. to a few years ago. Yes, yeah, but exactly. compared to last fall, it was somewhat restrained. Right. And, and they've shifted, you know, they're flying a lot more planes. They're flying, you know, over what they call the median line in the Taiwan Straits where they used to not go over. They've sort of normalized the new status quo in the way the PLA um, and some of their um, sort of what they call the sort of um, like, civilian-like but not really civilian ships operate around Taiwan. It's, it's definitely a, it shifted, the, shifted the lines. Well, so the, the point I've long made for many years, and we've talked about this before, is I think that thinking about Chinese action against Taiwan simply in the context of an invasion is a mistake. It's always Agreed. seemed clear that if they do act, it would be some sort of embargo, which uh, made this bit of news from Reuters. Uh, again, this was this was before this didn't actually happen, but this this sort of came out around the time of, of the meeting. I'm going to quote here. China's Fujian Maritime Safety Administration launched a three day special joint patrol and inspection operation in the central and northern parts of the Taiwan Strait that includes moves to board ships. It said on its WeChat account. The move comes amid heightened tensions between China and Taiwan, with U.S. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy hosting Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen in California on Wednesday, becoming the most senior U.S. figure to meet a Taiwanese leader on U.S. soil in decades. Correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think they actually did any of that. But the fact they sort of mooted it, that was sort of a, a bit of a shift in the, in, in the goalpost, was it not? Um, it, it, again, to your point, it sort of shows what they could do. And this Maritime Safety Administration it's not the PLA. It's not the. It's not the Navy. But you know they have several ten thousand ton ships. They're, I mean they have some big ships. They have a lot of people, a lot of a lot of equipment. And if there were to be some sort of like you talked about, some sort of encirclement, some sort of blockade, um, the MSA, the Maritime Safety Administration, would likely play a pretty significant role in that. And so again, this was this sort of series of things they did over the last few days. I think were again for letting them practice and demonstrate various types of tactics that they would use if they were to make some sort of a move on Taiwan beyond rhetorical. Yeah. Well, I think just the fact that, it, you know, it, it just sort of talking about the possibility. Yeah. Um, 
from my perspective, is kind of helpful because that's actually what people should be focused on and concerned about. Yes. So, I mean, like, I don't know. I, I like it, it's not a great story, but also it's it's useful to sort of focus minds. I think on what the the actual threat threat is. No, and and I've talked about this with Andrew um, and written about it in the newsletter. I mean, you know, it, for 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 the PLA for for the PRC to invade Taiwan would be a, a it would be a disaster for everybody, but it would also be a massive failure of the PRC of the PRC policies. They they don't want to have to invade because what are, I mean, Taiwan Taiwan is a you know the stuff they want in Taiwan won't be there if they invade. Right. What what do they want in Taiwan? I mean, my. My view is, of course, ideally, they would get Taiwan as is, but it would still be a victory to get Taiwan, even if it's a uh, (laughs) – Yeah, and and I I was a little bit too slow. I should I shouldn't say this stuff, though. I mean, the the most important thing is that Taiwan is is, quote unquote, reunified so that they can they can complete the reunification of the motherland is sort of how they they talk about it. And it's the missing piece for this sort of great re- rejuvenation of the Chinese nation that, that she and previous leaders have talked about. But that said, beyond that, things that that they also value in the society, especially around semiconductors, in any sort of a kinetic conflict, a lot, I mean, a lot of those fabs would not work. I mean, I remember yeah, we, when no, I that, saw you, you had this story about a TSMC fab in Tainan where they realized that, like, the machines were out of calibration because there was a new high-speed rail station several kilometers away, and the vibrations yep. were messing up the machines. Yep. So, uh, you know, that, some, those some are, rockets those are much smaller vibrations <laughs> than uh, than bombs. Right. Yeah. No. That's 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 definitely the case. I mean, well, let's w- w- one last bit. You sort of mentioned this in passing about the military exercises uh, from the AP. China's military declared Monday, and that was this Monday. So we are now we are now sort of up to date that it is ready to fight after completing three days of large-scale combat exercises around Taiwan that simulated sealing off the island in response to the Taiwanese president's trip to the U.S. last week. The combat readiness patrols named Joint Sword were meant as a warning to self-governing Taiwan, which China claims as its own, China's military said earlier. And uh, again, I just think, sort of reiterate the point where China is learning and adjusting here as well. And, And again, this has always been the biggest threat, but I think making it tangible, just again, from an apolitical objective sort of perspective, uh, it should focus minds because it's very easy to your point to dismiss an invasion like, oh, they're not going to actually do that. And you talk about Taiwan's actually an exceptionally difficult landmass to invade. Right. Uh, the, the South China Sea is not easy to cross. There's not many beaches that are that are suitable to it. And this idea that we're going to have this grand amphibious invasion in the year 2023 is hard for people to sort of wrap their wrap their minds around. But I think people in the U.S. in particular uh, are very familiar with, uh, you know, sanctions. And uh, this isn't sanctions per se, but it's more economic warfare in many respects. And that's always been sort of the 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 obvious threat. No fly zone, some sort of a, a right, a, right. No, that, that, that's what I was reaching rather, for. Whether it's an you know embargo, blockade. I mean, all, there's a, the whole spectrum of things they could do, um, short of invading. Which again, I think would would, as you said, is very hard to do. It's- right, and, and, and what in a military sort of invasion, what you're probably going to do is you're going to bomb the crap out of Okinawa, like when that happens, right? Like like if you want a way to guarantee the U.S entering the war uh in in a full-scale kinetic fashion uh you going kinetic first is a great way to sort of make that happen right whereas if you sort of just ratchet up the pressure slowly it's like at what point where's the line where do you actually cross the line and um 
you know, I think that's that's probably a lesson that China has sort of observed in the context of Russia and Ukraine sort of taking over um, uh, Crimea, like everyone sort of let it go. Right. But once you sort of broach the popular consciousness, then U.S. and European leaders felt no choice but to respond. And, you know, you don't want to cross that line. No, and that's why, you know, it's the president's high here. You know, a, a big purpose of her trip is to rally support in D.C., you know, to get the Capitol Hill to basically say, you know, sort of this will not or this cannot stand or this can't happen. Right. And, and sort of and drum up that support. And I think she was it's one of the reasons it's so upset Beijing is, is she was actually has been pretty successful in that campaign. But one yeah, question well, for you, well, I was going to ask you, because you're in Taipei. So, I mean, you know, we sit here in the U.S. and people talk about like, you know, this is like, you know, the, the, the imminent threat. And, but, but from all my friends in, I know in Taiwan, no one seems like they're really freaking out. No, there's there's basically zero discussion of it. I mean, I, 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 which I think is both a positive and a negative sort of indicator. So the way you know, I get asked about Taiwan constantly now, right? right? Whenever I talk to anyone outside Taiwan and people reach out, I got reach out this weekend. And yeah, to your point, you know, the, the way I put it, I've used this phrase. I might have used I'm sure I've used it with you. Uh, it's a great phrase. I'm going to keep going to it, which is uh, for many, many years, uh, you know, I was aware of and knew of this threat, right? Like it's something that that Taiwan has lived with for literally since you know since since the Kuomintang sort of retreated in the face of of the the communists, you know, back in what 1952, and so it's always been a threat. And there is a bit where when in the U.S. there the cog the everyone thought Taiwan was Thailand, right? <laughs> there was literally. I actually had a girl. I actually had a love interest when I was living in Taiwan from my college who sent me something and sent it to Thailand. So yeah, no, <laughs> this it, is a, like, like in 1991. So. No, that's, that's the, that's the joke go to what I was going to, but it's funny because everyone in Taiwan can relate to it because that's literally the case. Yes. Every, basically everyone you talk to thought Taiwan was Thailand. And I think this gets to a lot of the consternation that I do see here. Now, I should say my view of things from Taiwan is not necessarily representative of the population as a whole. Like there were previous periods of my life where I was much more, you know, sort of in general society and and getting the sort of the man or woman on the street sort of perspective on what's going on. These days, uh, I mostly hang out with folks that are, have, you know, they have big business interests. They're they're sort of biased for sure in their being peace. You know, are, are would tend to be more favorable to the opposition party for that reason. Which I'll get to. I'll get to the, that in a little mm-hmm. bit. So again, I, I would say my broad based awareness is maybe a bit biased these days. But there is an aspect where the real frustration is the fact the U.S. seems to care so much right now. Like, like and, and that's what is perceived as sort of the danger. And this is something that's really hard to communicate and articulate. But I think, I mean, you obviously get this because there's just an aspect. Uh, there's a real cultural difference here, which is, um, you know, again, we're two white guys talking about Chinese culture, but uh, but that probably gives us a, a particular unique perspective on it, which is I think the Chinese in general and Chinese I'm using sort of with a broad brush, including both both people in Taiwan and in China, are very comfortable with ambiguity. Um, there's, it's just sort of a way you operate in day-to-day life where what you say, you say the right things. That doesn't mean you necessarily do those things. And, and, and 
it, that sounds odd to an American. Like, aren't you being hypocritical? Or aren't you not being consistent? It's like, no, that's just the way it's done. Like, like you say certain things that everyone sort of, you know, everyone says the right thing and everyone goes and does what they're going to do anyway. Right. Like they're, they're, and, and that's can be a challenge for Westerners coming to work here and vice versa. I think it's a challenge in communication between the PRC and the U S government where just the, the, the means of communication are, are sort of very different but you scale that up to this conflict as a whole. And the reality is the best possible outcome for Taiwan is continuing to be ambiguous, is to be gray, is to basically yeah. function as an independent country without explicitly declaring that you're an independent, independent. country. No, that's right. And I think and Ta- that's what Taiwanese want. And I think by and large, China, again, I think Xi Jinping is a bit of a wild card, but over – Historically speaking, China's been okay with that as well. I think a real challenge with Taiwan being such a big deal in D.C. right now is Americans hate that. (laughs) They hate this idea. What do you mean you're going to practically be independent but not be independent? Let's resolve this. And it's like there is no resolution here that is palatable. And it's the, the, the visibility in D.C., results in a drive to resolution that's sort of a very american sort of thing and that's not a criticism that's one of the things that makes you know american culture great uh it's not a great match for the reality of the situation no and you articulated i think or you put your finger on a a, a big part of the debate in dc around taiwan and there are certainly people who um who have sort of spent a lot of time looking at this issue a lot of experience in and out of government who who have who come come down on the side of the best thing we can do is basically find ways to kick the can down the road to keep this yep. ambiguity right, and then you have the ones who are maybe new to this issue who are much more about like we should declare we should declare that Taiwan's an independent country or you know we should invite President Tsai to speak at you know a joint session of Congress, um, and I think that the problem is and, and again this is something listeners. To Sharp China will know because Andrew and I have talked about spoken about this on a couple on a few podcasts. Is you know there people talk about sort of what's an existential crisis and you know it, like there's some people say in DC oh the the challenge with China is existential. I mean for for China in some ways the sort of the unity of the quote unquote motherland and the and the recovery as they call it of Taiwan is is almost an existential issue. Like they will sacrifice a huge amount to make sure that Taiwan does not become independent. They will tolerate up to a point they've tolerated this ambiguity. The, the question, the, the, the challenge really becomes, as you pointed out earlier, Xi Jinping is a bit of a wild card. He is yep. accelerating a lot of things. And I think it's, it, it, it isn't necessarily what he's saying is different than what has been said by his predecessors. It's just that China has a lot more capability. Yeah. And they have a lot more heft. They have a much better PLA. I mean, you look at the, the 95, 96 Taiwan Straits crisis. It turned out the missiles they sent over Taiwan had no warheads. And it turned out actually that some, I forget exactly who, but some senior politician in Taiwan made this comment that they had no warheads, which led to the unraveling of a spy network at the senior, at the top levels of the PLA who were feeding this information to the Taiwanese, right? Because, the, and the reality was is because the Chinese couldn't. Now they can. And so- I think the, the the view of how to resolve this and when to resolve this and what the timeline is shifts based on what the capabilities are. It also shifts on where you have Xi Jinping, who is clearly a different leader than his most recent predecessors. He's he's effectively leader for life. And 
to be the guy who reunifies the motherland puts him above Mao. Yeah. Well, this is this is well, this is sort of my theory. So, so I want to put it to you and tell me if you think it's right. And I think it's important to understand. It's interesting because my goal with Shachekery and the reason why I I love Sharp China and and having this sort of partnership with you is look like we're just going to try to help you understand the parameters of what's going on and what people are thinking. And you're going to have to make those decisions for yourself. And and we're not going to come out here warmongering in sort of either direction, but there is a ton of context here that's useful. And one that I think about is you go back through like Chinese history, right? And like, who who gets na- who who gets the dynasties sort of named after them right it's the ones that reunify china china breaks apart and then someone reunifies it and then it breaks apart and reunifies it and i think what makes me nervous about xi and you sort of put your finger right on it which is if you want to put the current period of time in the context of all of chinese history we're in the mao dynasty basically right uh you know he he did reunify china but for Taiwan, and again, setting aside all the dispute of how much was Taiwan traditionally part of China, X, Y, Z, from the Chinese perspective, that's that's definitely the view. And so if he wants to be on the level of Mao, like there's no other, like what else can he do other than sort of get back Taiwan, right? And it's it's almost the personal ambition of Xi that makes me the most nervous because from a Chinese perspective – it would it seems like madness right i mean like like the they they have this demographic cliff they have they've had this very difficult few years from the economy as far as covid goes on they have the, the all the property issues that that you've talked about why push on this and well uh why would <laughs> xi jinping do lots of things that's sort right. of like a that that's a big question right and and i think that um the more sort of the more it looks like taiwan is resisting or pulling away, the more the PRC has to react. And certainly, you know, and there have been plenty of polls out of Taiwan. I mean, they're just, there's not a lot of sort of shared common identity with the mainland anymore. Right? Yeah, well, the, there, the, there's the a Hong unique Kong stuff, Taiwan it, identity. Uh, and the Hong Kong stuff makes it- Was a disaster. Absolutely yeah. disaster. Yeah. I mean, like it, it, it destroyed the KMT. Uh, the, the KMT, um, what was his name? The Kaohsiung- guy uh he was uh, uh what is yeah, yeah i know you're talking about <laughs> heavily tipped to win the presidential election yeah. like tying one's approval rating was in the teens basically until the crackdown happened in hong kong and she ended up winning with like 60 some percent of the vote like it, it, it's basically directly Han attributable Yu, right? to that yes 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 um well this is, this is a good segue actually because i think it's it, believe it or not it's that time we have to be looking forward to uh, elections and uh, the Taiwanese presidential election uh, is happens on the same four-year time frame as the U.S., but it's the beginning of the year, not the end of the year. And there is this story from Focus Taiwan. Um, uh, Taiwan's 2024 presidential election is not a matter of war and peace, but a choice between democracy and autocracy, Vice President Lai ching said Wednesday, after being named as the presidential candidate of the ruling Democratic Progressive Party. The mention of war and peace was likely meant to rebut critics in the opposition Guomindang, who have argued that tensions with China could spike to dangerous levels if the DPP remains in power. In remarks on January 1st, for example, KMT former President Ma Ying-jeou warned, vote for the DPP, youth will go to the battlefield. Vote for the Guomindang and there will be no war on both sides of the Taiwan Strait. I mean, leave it to the old retired politicians to <laughs> just have, you know, to, 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 to sort of lay it out straight. But I think that's exactly how this president's election is is going to sort of go down. 
And, and I think that's also, you know, this, the, the president, the former president Ma, the, whom you quoted, I mean, he was just in China and, and that was a big, uh, a big win, I think for the PRC because it, it, he was treated very well. He said all the right things. And I think it, 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 it's a, and it was happening overlap with highest visit to, to the U S and it provides a real clear juxtaposition about which way it could go. And, and so, you know, the KMT and I'm, I don't want to, I'm not on up to speed at all on Taiwan politics. I mean, the KMT though, it sounds like the, the, the candidates are, it's not clear who's going to be the, um, who's going to be the KMT nominee, but it, it is a, um, you know, the KMT did well in the recent elections of the quote unquote midterms, um, and I don't know. I mean, the the Chinese, I think, are going to be smarter than they were in '96. But that quote that you gave from Mindjo, it has it has persuasive. Um, it has some persuasiveness, I think. No, I'll. I'll it, that's exactly. I think it, that's exactly what the KMT's message will be and ought to be. In part because, yeah, the KMT is sort of on a national basis is is like they're stuck. They have this. I mean, there, there's you can make analogies to to whatever to U.S. politics if you want, but they have this rump that is just super absolutist, and it completely turns off sort of the younger generation, you know, which is you know hardcore nationalists, like descended from the from the people that came over from China. They view themselves as Chinese, sort of first and foremost. And while that's a very small portion of the overall population, they have significant sway within the KMT, mm-hmm. and and that's sort of a real challenge for them. But there is a bit here where I do think, like the t- Taiwanese, I, there's a lot of nervousness about this. Like, like, kind of on one hand, it, and it's hard to. I think this is maybe again. I, I'm hesitant to speak out of place because I I'm not any sort of Taiwan correspondent. I'm not out in the streets, but I think there is a bit where if you take all your cues on the way Taiwan people think from the Taiwanese government. That's also not a correct viewpoint because the like the DPP is it, it, it's like if you took all the cues from American things from a Republican president for a Democratic president, you're not yeah. getting sort of the full perspective. And a lot of Taiwanese, all they want is just let things stay the way they are. Like that's a go about very, their lives. Powerful Taiwan's a nice, yeah. Taiwan is a nice place. Let let people live their lives in the nice place that is Taiwan. Yep. Yeah. Go and so all lives. these polls, there, there's always. You know, there's never like sort of majority support for independence or something along those lines. And yeah, I th- but to that point, though, the sort of to bring that all together, the way in which the KM- KMT will win, if they win, I think is probably not because they have some compelling candidate that sort of inspires people. It's because they scare the living bejesus yeah. out of the population. And, and, and it's an anti sort of. DPP vote as opposed to a pro campaign, and, and one of the one of the things to watch for is how does the PRC play that and sort of sort of amplify those sentiments and amplify that messaging inside Taiwan to effectively help the KMT win the election, which I think we we should assume is probably going to happen. And then the question becomes, I mean, the KMT can't just hand over Taiwan. So then it then it becomes okay if there's a KMT president, does that mean that then there's a four year period where maybe the tensions really do die down and there's at least some possibility of some sort of political condominium. Um, I don't know. I mean, that seems like the best case scenario and, but it doesn't seem that likely. Well, let's go back to the Xi Jinping question. Number one, um, do you agree with my characterization of his motivations? And then number two, I think the, the, the second shoe here is 
he has not demonstrated the sort of pragmatism we've associated with Chinese leaders from sort of Deng Xiaoping on um, in all sorts of areas from COVID to, you know, like yeah. I think COVID is probably the like COVID was like very concerning where I go back to when COVID first came, you know, China went through this. They had such a diplomatic opportunity from my perspective where everyone felt bad for China. And they could be like, look, we've gone through this. Let's let's we'll send you supplies. We'll do X, Y, Z. And instead, they made such a hard shift into overt propaganda. It's not us. It's the U.S. soldiers or whatever it might be. And and they got instead of gracefully taking advantage of the situation, they went they actually made more people mad at them. And that that's just it's it's not not a great sign. It's not how they roll. I mean, that's, that's just the way the system reacts. And I think that it isn't a great sign. And, I, you know, you have to go back to what happened in Hong Kong and how they handled Hong Kong and, and where, um, you know, this, this sort of concept of one country, two systems basically was blown up. And, um, and so, it, it, you know, in, in many ways, what, what has happened under Xi has made the prospects of some sort of political solution over Taiwan uh, more remote. Um, and at the same time, it, 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 and again, it, 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 at the same time, it does feel like there really is more of a sense of urgency to get something done around Taiwan so that she can say that he's achieved this great, you know, the reunification to sort of just the final sort of brick in the sort of great rejuvenation of China. And so it, yeah. it, it is, I think it is quite concerning. Um, and but but it is also a China that is much, much more powerful with much more capabilities. And so that also, I think, influences how he assesses the problem. Yeah, I think this is one area I do push back on uh, some of my Taiwanese friends who are all pretty annoyed at the U.S. these days and, and the DPP, uh, you know, for this point I, I said earlier, where, like, stop making this such a big deal. Right, the idea right? that somehow like, it's the U.S.'s fault, right? Is that, is that sort of basically like, you know, there are a lot of countries in the region that think it's the U.S.'s fault, which is interesting. No, I mean, there, a lot of people in Taiwan think it's the U.S.'s fault, and, and, and there is – a degree of truth there, right? Like when the U.S., again, the U.S. wants to push to resolution and there is no good resolution here, but it's important to remember that, like, it's not just the U.S.'s fault. Right, no, the, I mean, one of the things the Chinese say, and they said it last week several times, is basically, the, you know, the U.S. has hollowed out this one China policy and all the things they promised to do, they, they've, they've made changes to it, they're doing things they said they would never do, and the U.S. reaction, the U.S. has, and the U.S. reaction is, well, so has China. Right. So the, so so sort of the both sides are have, have effectively been undercutting what sort of this this ambiguous status quo. Um, and, you know, the Chinese, of course, deny they're doing it. The U.S. basically says, you know, that um, remarkable how some of the U.S. government spokespeople last week said with a straight face that this was like normal. No, 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 no divergence from previous practice when Taiwan transited through the U.S. Um, the reality is, is both sides have been have been moving on their original sort of understandings around Taiwan. And that is vol- that adds a lot of volatility. Yeah. I, I, one more point that you made was, you know, how the Hong Kong sort of blew up the one country, two systems formulation, which was probably already not really realistic. I mean, th- for Taiwan, you've talked, yeah. Yeah. You, from a Taiwan, Taiwanese perspective, right. right? You've talked about how identity has shifted in Taiwan from, you know, it used to be sort of 50, 50, I'm Chinese, I'm Taiwanese to, Basically, everyone says I'm Taiwanese, you know, sort of at, at this point. One of my theories actually is that the opening up of Chinese tourism helped drive this, <laughs> where there is just sort of like a, uh, you know, 
I don't know. You could. I would just the the, the timing matches there's up. Culture, there's a culture clash. Friends. There's a real culture. There was a culture clash. clash. Yeah. No. There and was. I I had friends. So I was living in Beijing. Then I had friends who went, and you know, quite honestly, I had a lot of friends who were very impressed with Taiwan. Um, like like how it was functioning inside, but it but there was it's it's in many ways it's different cultures now. It's it's there's a there's a lot of things to a lot of potential friction. I think the culture differences are are pretty profound. I mean, there is there is an aspect of Taiwan is and people have talked about this in like tour guides. So like Taiwan or Taiwan's the place you go to get old Chinese culture, like in many in many respects, right? Like like and in in part because it didn't go through things like the Cultural Revolution. It didn't go through this sort of upheaval, and that is obviously a good thing. Uh, but there's also downstream effects like when it comes to say business or it comes to sort of military capability where there was such a queening uh, uh, I don't want to talk about queening house is sort of the raising of the ground in, in China that the the there's an aspect of just Chinese capabilities and business and like all this old bureaucratic nonsense which does still exist in in, in aspects of Chinese life but in business for example I, you, you tend to find Chinese companies much more sort of aggressive, much Ooh. more willing to sort of take risks in a way that just doesn't generally happen here. You also have sort of the, the Japanese influence from from the Japanese built a ton of the infrastructure in Taiwan, still has a big impact. The sort of salaryman culture is is a thing in Taiwan even today. And it's just it's different. It, it, it's it, yeah. it's a lot different than I I think people realize in both good and bad ways. Yeah. And so, you know, I think I don't know though. I mean, the, the mood in DC, especially in the in Congress, is very much to do more for Taiwan and to rush more weapons to Taiwan. And, and obviously, you know, Ukraine has um, really focused a lot of minds in DC about sort of what could happen, and it, it's the sort of framing, sort of the the moral. You know, Taiwan's a democracy. It's it's a free place, um, and then there's also the the sort of the economic technological bits which is well if the tsmc and the other fabs were destroyed or fell into you know communist china hands then we'd all be screwed yeah so it's sort of cycled up this um very strong concerns as well as very strong emotions in dc yeah i it is the other thing point i was going to make actually we, we focus on the mind joe quote in this sort of you know bit about the election it's striking that the the basically the tagline for the DPP is uh, vote for us because you support democracy. <laughs> like it's kind of like the it's gone to the grab all. Uh, we are the well, you said, you said it right there. It's a choice between democracy and autocracy. I mean, we're we're, we're, we're there's not a lot of subtlety. Let's just say in yeah. these campaigns. Well, Taiwan. Shows. I mean, Taiwan. Taiwan elections are raucous. Um, and I was there studying 1991, and it was right when sort of things were sort of recently out of martial law, recently opening up, and there were some um, just it, it was fascinating to watch some of the political stuff that was happening. Um, and it is very, very. Uh, I mean, it's obviously much more mature now, mature now, but um, it is a it is a thriving, unique democracy, um, and it would be, I think, a bad thing for that to be somehow destroyed. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, if you think that you know U.S. elections are annoying because you have all these campaign commercials on TV, um, now imagine sound trucks going up and down. Oh yeah, the sound trucks are great. I don't, the vote buying has sort of died down, hasn't it? I think the vote buying is is yeah. It's, I think it's, it's been cracked down a fair bit. One thing that I do 
love it. Like, honestly, this is one of those things where you look at the U.S. It's like, can't you figure this out? Uh, the vote counting here is incredible. Like, it, it's actually it, it's it's something that if you're in the area, it's worth seeing. You can go to your local place there they th- and watch them count the votes and they go through they pull it out they show it up they put a mark on the whiteboard or the, or the, the chalkboard because it's usually in a school and and they're they like yell out who it's for and there's representatives for both parties sitting there and it's done in like two hours it's incredible it's it's so efficient that's good well and, and they need that transparency yeah no exactly yeah that, that, that's exactly right um one more bit uh do you have a view on this sort of warren buffett and tsmc thing um i'll I'll go from reuters warren buffett called geopolitical tensions a consideration in berkshire hathaway incorporated decision to sell most of its stake in Taiwanese chipmaker tsmc just a few weeks after buying it nikkei reported on tuesday berkshire had bought more than 4.1 billion dollars of Taiwan semiconductor manufacturing company's shares between july and september 2022 but in february said it had sold 86 percent of its stake by year end um there is you know there, <laughs> I would say this uh, inspired a lot of confidence, uh, but sort of what's your perspective? Um, you know, it, it, it seemed it seemed a little fast to switch um, from thinking it was a buy to geopolitical considerations. I will say that one thing that I, that that is happening with sort of the increasing concerns around the, the around Taiwan and DC is. You know, you have like the the new the select committee that's chaired by Representative Gallagher from your home state of Wisconsin. Um, you've got you just got a lot of a lot of action, a lot of activities going on around uh, and movement and commerce and Congress around Taiwan. Is it's it's putting a lot of pressure on companies to think about what the risks they have are that are related to Taiwan, uh, both in terms of how do they de-risk, but also what do they disclose? And you also have now because. You know, consultants are always looking for the new opportunity. Um, there are consulting firms that are selling sort of Taiwan wargaming scenarios to large corporations, like at the C-suite board level, sort of talk through what would happen in various contingencies in the Taiwan Straits, up to and including some sort of like an invasion or like a like a blockade or encirclement like we talked about earlier. And I think all those things are creating this sense in, in parts of corporate America that there's just a lot more risk now of doing anything related to Taiwan. And so whether or not that is sort of Buffett bought the stuff and then talked to a few people and realized, well, wait a minute, maybe there's more risks than I realize. If that's what's going on, I don't know. But I do think that you, you're going to see – and it's not good for Taiwan because it's going gonna, it's gonna, to, I think, going to lead to American companies being much more cautious about what they do in and around Taiwan. Because you know, one of the things, too, is like if, if everyone's talking about this risk – and you're a company, and you're a public company. You deploy a bunch of capital. You you, you get a big reliance on on Taiwan, and then something bad happens, and your company's screwed. Well, you're going to get sued, right? Because you are not, you know, you you didn't do your fiduciary duty. Yeah, I think this is this is actually um, this ought to be a point of attack for the KMT against the DPP. Uh, also, it, so this is I don't know how much of the weeds we want we want to get, get here, but I first off I agree with you big picture. This is. It's interesting because in many respects, this is actually the best sort of uh, articulation or implementation of what has always been China's approach, which is let's squeeze Taiwan economically. It's kind of the problem for China is, well, they were sort of we're going to draw Taiwan closer economically. Uh, Basically, what happened is they made Taiwan phenomenally rich. I mean, like I I think that it's not it's not fully appreciated how rich Taiwan is like it it, it, and uh, in part because. And it's a weird economy because 
so much of the money was made in China. Like Taiwanese companies built up Chinese industry, and mm-hmm. then all those profits flowed back to Taipei. Taipei has like the eighth most billionaires in the world. Like it, it's a, it, it, it's a very and, wealthy and place. It's very wealthy, and you have this weird sort of system where. You know, don't call it currency manipulation, but, you know, everything within Taiwan is very cheap. Uh, Anything that comes in from the outside is very expensive, but they make enough of this stuff here and all the food sourced here that you have, you know, the the working population is – doesn't make any money. It's like the wages are shockingly low, but because the infrastructure is so great, like in daily – and it's so convenient and food's cheap and and generally, you know, that's why whenever there's political – Domestic political stuff, it's always about real estate because that's where people feel the pinch is mm-hmm. is, is uh, of the balance here. And so so this whole we're going to squeeze Taiwan economically never really happened for a long time. But this no one from the outside is going to want to invest in Taiwan going forward. That's real. That's real pressure. And I think it'd be an issue going forward. And one thing that's uh, the DPP, I think, is making a mistake at is they're doing a lot to squeeze their own corporations. Like they passed this, they passed the, or there's this new sort of tax regime that came in this year, for example, that is really trying to squeeze down on external holding companies, right? Like, you know, that, that are in Singapore or in XYZ and, you know, trying to capture all the tax. And you can see an analogy here to the U.S. similar things with sort of corporations right. as, you know, that are trying to be based in Ireland or, or Luxembourg or whatever it might be. It's a similar sort of idea. Uh, on the surface, it makes sense. Sure, they should absolutely capture, you know, like corporations should not be playing tricks. At the same time, there's an aspect where Taiwan kind of needs to hold its business closer than ever and make sure they can succeed and not be have the impetus to actually go even further out and get uh, even more outside of Taiwan. And I'm not sure the DPP has really thought through that sort of chain of events. That's an interesting point. I, I don't um, No, I mean, again, this, this, there was an essay that um, uh, two think, think tankers in DC wrote a couple months ago Um Jude Blanchett and uh, Ryan Haas, where basically they talked about the, I mean, the, the short sort of the, the, the one sentence summary of their article was find a way to kick the can down the road. Yep. There's what that that's, that's the best solution for, for everybody that we can come up with. Yeah, I think that's right. And by the way, the, the Occam's razor explanation for Buffett is he traditionally does not invest in tech companies, super high capex companies. Like there yeah. is a, TSMC is an investment, despite their position, that still takes a lot, uh, a certain sort of investor. Like, yeah, they're spending I, I, I just wonder if it's, a year. you never know if that was more of an excuse because he realized, like, wow, that there's something else was going on in the business that he realized or had missed or someone said something. And this was a convenient way to sort of explain away this, this sort of U-turn. I, I don't yeah. know. It'd be fascinating to know. On the tech angle and sort of uh, a, a bit of a pivot here, from the Financial Times, uh, Hours after tech giant Alibaba followed its peers SenseTime and Baidu with the launch of a chat GPT-like bot. China's powerful internet regulator released draft measures likely to slow Alibaba's rollout, citing chatbots' potential for social mobilization. The Cyberspace Administration of China proposal said providers would have to submit their products for security reviews before their public release and would set up a database to register them. The regulator also said platforms must verify users' identities, allowing usage to be tracked. Quote, content generated by generative artificial intelligence should embody core socialist values and must not contain any content that subverts state power, 
advocates the overthrow of the socialist system, incites splitting the country, or undermines national unity. The CSA rules state. And just a couple other points sort of from, from these rules. There's bits about uh, ensuring sort of like, uh, you know, every representation, similar things we've sort of, you know, seen uh, – disputes here there's bits about it you have to verify it's true you have to make sure that there's not false statements made that's obviously uh a challenge uh, with these models but at the same time they're not like banning them right is there a real sense here that look we need this stuff but so it kind of feels like despite the fact there's all these rules the fact that they're actually pushing something means the, the the folks that want progress are sort of winning out? Is that no? Is that I mean, I, I think it's actually. Um, I mean, it, it's not surprising given how uh, internet, other internet content, or, or other data is regulated in China. Um, and I think that in many ways, this is probably good for the industry in China because it sets sets rules and, and clarifies rules and guardrails now, um, and so it allows companies to know what they can do, what they need to do, where they can invest, as opposed to doing something and then getting smacked down after spending a few hundred million dollars on something. Um, and so, you know, there's, there should never have been an expectation that there was going to be, that it wasn't going to be AI with Chinese characteristics, just like there's socialism with Chinese characteristics. There, this was always going to end up under some sort of a, um, you know, the, the AI in the PRC was going to have a higher political consciousness that adhered to the sort of whatever rules and censorship and um, sort of content moderation content directing that the communist party wanted. And so I think ultimately this will probably um, the industry will develop differently, obviously than here in the U S but, and it will potentially cause them problems if they want to take it outside of China, because are you going to want to, you know, you're going to want to look at the AI from China that maybe is also sort of like imbued with Xi Jinping thought. Um, right. Right. I mean, the, the interesting thing was this notice in Chinese did not actually mention Xi Jinping or Xi Jinping thought, which was um, kind of interesting because it would be even more it would be worrisome if it basically said, like, you know, it has to adhere to Xi Jinping thought for AI. Um, but stuff like, you know, not subverting the government. You, I went when I was reading it, I went to chat GPT and I typed in, like, how would you overthrow the U.S. government or how would you subvert the U.S. government? It won't give you an answer. Right. So, I mean, even though there are no laws, like it's not like they're, it's regulated here, they're already trained to basically not spit out some of this content. And so, yep. you know, ultimately, this, this is not a surprise what they're doing. I think what's interesting is in many ways when it comes to privacy, data regulation, um, they're pretty sophisticated, pretty advanced. They're certainly more further ahead than we are in the U.S. Well, in a lot I of mean, ways. It- it depends how you look at it, because that way you you yes, sort of you so, no you sort of like broached on what was kind of my takeaway, which is I feel like these rules are less a commentary on China and more a commentary on the U.S. and sort of the implicit political rules that tech companies are effectively operating on, right? Like the the there is not a mandate for AI to generate black and white truth. There's a mandate to make sure that it 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 does not reflect bias, right? And and what is what's bias? What's the definition there? Is it right. is it things as they were, or is it things as we want them to be in the future? And we want to sort of you know pu- push that out. And so I mean, yeah, it's like these rules. To your point, well, the well the PRC is defining them, but they're defining that clearly, right? So, for example, core socialist values are. I'm going to read them to you. They are 
prosperity, democracy, civility, harmony, freedom, equality, justice, and the rule of law, patriotism, dedication, integrity, and friendship. Um, now, each Sounds one of those, each one of those has its <laughs> own sort of how you define it and who, who gets to decide what it is. But in many ways, it, it is it is making it much more black and white. I think on the China, in the Chinese context, which I think ultimately helps the companies. Yeah, it's a great point. The fact that they're getting clear rules up front is is good from a business perspective. I mean, obviously, the last five years. I mean, well, this sort of gets to the where you get worried about Xi Jinping, right? You go back to the summer of 2020, and and they're they're. I I think he said sort of explicitly. I'm, I'm not quoting, but it, but by and large that we have this opportunity to enact all these reforms, right? We have we have this 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 airspace to sort of do it, and then it suddenly turned out very quickly. Uh, wait, our uh, everything's collapsing in value. Maybe that opportunity that we perceived existed didn't. You had all this uncertainty around these companies, and now I think the companies in general are feeling better about things. They feel you know there was a meaningful. You know, last year's sort of pronouncements that okay, we're done now. Uh, reforms yeah. are done. Where <laughs> everything's good, yeah. uh, and this is maybe a continuation of that. Where look, we can deal. Just give us, give right. us guardrails. Well, what they've done is they, they've, they've, they've the, the the sort of the sudden capricious crackdowns around some of these tech companies are probably over. There's a lot more regulation. There's a lot more guardrails. A lot more frameworks. And um, but like you said, I mean, companies companies can manage if there's certainty. The problem is when there's uncertainty. And when there's and so this, I think, in some ways, de-risks it. Um, you know, their bigger problem is can they get all the chips they need? Um, and and that different discussion. But I think that ultimately, it's it's going to be there's only going to be a handful of the big internet companies who are actually be the ones who are sort of the the main providers of AI in China. There'll probably be lots of companies that build stuff off those bigger models, but right. there are very few companies that I think can both afford it and then actually access the technology or build it themselves. Yeah, well- and this is where I, I, you know, just put put my plant my American flag here. I, I, I would just double down on this point that we should think about the fact that these regulations don't look that much different than what the, our centralized providers are sort of com- committing to. Uh, we should think about not the fact tra- that, yes, not transparently though, right? Are no, they- exactly. It's a, no, no, not. But like, just you know the. How does the U.S. compete with China in the long run, right? Like my sort of core thesis in general is, and it's cliche, but I think it's true, is through innovation. Innovation comes from freedom, being able to sort of not start out with a top-down diktat of rules. And there's a bit where the opportunity for innovation, the context of these language models is particularly large precisely because they're not deterministic because they don't get stuff right all the time like like to me the the fact these models hallucinate is actually what makes them compelling oh that's it, right it, you like, actually yeah. had the hallucinatory experience i didn't have that so you've actually been there well but, but there's even the fact that it, it's making stuff up right I, I think that there's um you know the there's what's compelling about these is they do seem to think more like humans where we have intuition about something. We might get the facts wrong, but we have a general idea of sort of what something is. Right. And I, you know, I've noted on a previous episode of sharp tech, like I don't know what I'm going to say 10 seconds from now. Right. We're at 56, 18. What am I going to say at 56, uh, you know, 36? I don't know. It just sort of, it sort of comes out. Right. But what I need to do deterministic, get stuff right or wrong I go to my computer and the computer does gives me the exact right answer that I can then incorporate and update my intuition about sort of the way the way things work. And this is I think it's going to take a while to 
really figure out what these can be used for in a meaningful way because there's completely new applications where you have intuition by a machine as opposed to just, you know, distilling it down to sort of ones and zeros. And the China's not going to like that. That's no. not compatible well, with sort of socialist gonna, values. They're right? not going to allow that. And I think to just to be clear, I'm not saying that I think these are good rules that the U.S. should have. I'm just saying from the perspective of the Chinese companies trying to develop in this industry. Oh, no, for sure. No, these, I agree are, yeah. these are actually a good news for those companies because I think yeah. a lot of the people in these companies would much rather have the U.S. approach. But it's no, not I, possible in the political environment in which they exist. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. It's good for business to have guardrails because you, you can accommodate yourself sort of to those guardrails. But I think the takeaway for you, for the U.S. is – we ought to be going in the opposite direction. Yes. And, uh, and, and yes, does that entail risks? Yes. Is, is, is misinformation or disinformation a bad thing? Of course it is. But, but there is a totality of the direction that you're going and what are, what's the sort of ground for innovation and actually making new things. If, if stuff was known, if you had good information, it wouldn't be a new thing, right? Like, and I, I think that, there's just a this is sort of my my big sort of US China takeaway yeah. in general is um more freedom and accepting the risks inherent in that is the long-term response. And I mean not having a political commissar for AI, which is basically what these rules are effectively saying. Yep. Yep. Well, uh, there's more we could have gotten. I think I was right to uh postpone uh, yes. the, the French nope. discussion. <laughs> we did not get to TikTok. Uh, TikTok is an excellent example of, you know, obviously I was very, I was pretty early on the, um, I'm not sure we should be allowing this in the, in the U S perspective. And it also has been a reflection of my concern that the, uh, the actual implementation of political action <laughs> can make the problem worse. I'm not sure how good the, this bill in Congress is, but, uh, we can leave that perhaps for another, uh, another guest spot. Yeah, the TikTok I and mean, TikTok has banned in my household, but has nothing to do with China. It just has to do with watching, <laughs> watching my kids' brain matter leak out of their ears after half an hour from using it. It it is uh, it is it is incredibly addictive. Uh, the, 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 that's definitely fair to say. Well, right. uh, well, good to talk to you, Bill. Yeah, Ben, um, it's always good to see you. Up. Yeah, um, I, Andrew will be back soon. We'll see how the next few weeks slash months go. I may be back, uh, which is which is good. We're a family friendly enterprise here. Um, yes. And uh, congratulations again to Andrew, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. Yeah, I'll see you on Substack Notes. Right? Woohoo! <laughs> hey, I I like it from a Substack perspective. I think that platform wars are not necessarily the best thing for writers, but no. you know. I'm not sure that uh, (laughs) who knows what Twitter is doing. So maybe it doesn't matter anyway. (laughs) Yeah, we'll leave it there. I just um, it's uh, it's been an interesting few days and uh, change is good. I agree. It's an exciting time everywhere.